I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Eric Anderson started watching award shows as a kid with his mom. You know, Miss USA, Miss (laughs) Universe (laughs) stuff, all the pageant things. And, you know, we would, as each commercial break would hit, we'd be like, okay, I think this person's ahead. I think this person's winning. But it wasn't just beauty pageants that captured Anderson's fancy. He also loved the spectacle of award shows like the Oscars. I think the first that I really remember is... uh, Star Wars 70, 77 for Star Wars, so the 78 for the for the show. So I was seven years old. At that age, Anderson didn't exactly know what the shows were all about, but he knew he loved movies and movie stars, and so did his mom. She recognized <laughs> something in me that was really into awards <laughs> and pageantry and things like that. And she just wanted to be super, super supportive of it. And she was. <laughs> I like I like the innuendo. Yes. <laughs> The award shows were a safe space for Anderson to explore his identity. And they were also a chance for some mother-son bonding. You know, even when I I moved out and didn't live with my mom, uh, we would talk every single uh, show, like throughout the show. Or now that I have, you know, my, my website and career, she goes right to me and she goes, well, okay, so what's winning and why and what movie should I see? And and it's kind of great. I love it. Anderson's the founder of AwardsWatch.com. It's one of the leading Academy Award prediction sites on the web. But don't call him a prognosticator. And I like Oscarologist. <laughs> so what is an Oscarologist? An Oscarologist is somebody that looks at an award season as an entire picture and is able to pick out the bits of uh, information and clues that leads to uh, eventual Oscar winners. I'm Lauren Ober, not an Oscarologist, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on the show, we explore the expanding universe of podcasts to bring you enlightening conversations. Maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. This week on the show, we're diving into the world of moving pictures in celebration of the upcoming Oscars. We'll talk golden age of cinema, representation in film, and how terrible movies get made. Now, our Oscars expert, Eric Anderson, probably couldn't tell you how trash movies are greenlit. But on his podcast, Awards Watch, he could tell you what films are most likely to win little gold statuettes this season. Even even though the, at this moment I am still predicting... Uh, get out to actually win. You know, I'm not a crazy person in in understanding where Three Billboards is and what it has going for it. Um, it's, you know, and there's a lot of people that have said, you know, you are, you are crazy and this is stupid and look at what Three Billboards has and, and it has the least amount to overcome and all of that's true, and I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that nothing at this point is is infallible. Everything has something against it and something for it. Anderson's been gazing into his Hollywood crystal ball for years. It started when he worked at a video rental store in the 90s. We had uh, uh, 
uh, Oscar uh, viewing parties uh, that were also costume parties. So I would always dress up as uh, some character from uh, a Best Picture nominee. He took the costume part of the Oscar parties really seriously. One year, he dressed up as the Oscar statuette, wearing a gold unitard and gold body paint. It was super messy. It was, I mean, yeah, I had to put a towel down in the car. It was just, it was absurd. But that's the, that is the links that you go to for things that you love. We're going to check in with Anderson in a bit about how he actually makes Oscar predictions and whether or not we should trust his cinema soothsaying. But first, we're going to travel back in time to old Hollywood, to the era of Bogey and Bacall, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and a whole lot of blonde bombshells. Jane Mansfield, Jean Harlow, and of course, Marilyn Monroe. This is Karina Longworth's Wheelhouse. Longworth is the host of You Must Remember This, which tells the rich history of Hollywood's first century. The show is meticulously researched and full of fun trivia nuggets about the industry's first icons, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane star, Joan Crawford. Why Joan Crawford? Well, as we'll see, in some ways, Crawford was the quintessential female star of the 20th century, whose career spanned the entirety of the classical Hollywood era, and whose star image was completely tied into the ebbs and flows of the studio system. Longworth is a film critic and historian, so she's the perfect tour guide through the untold stories of old Hollywood. Karina Longworth, host of You Must Remember This, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Tell me how your research process for your um, your episodes. How do you go about that? Um, because they're dense. Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I just try to read everything I can find to read in the time period that I have available, which is you know, I mean, before I even start making episodes for a season, I'm usually reading for two or three months and, and spending that time watching movies and trying to figure out what I think the main ideas and like the main events and main films are that I want to talk about. Um, and then for each individual episode, I like bore down into the specific time period or the specific film I'm talking about or whatever it is and just try to get as much detail as possible mm-hmm. and then shape a story out of it. Mm-hmm. I have a potentially dumb question, which is where <laughs> might one find these films that you referenced? Because I feel like when I was a kid, I, I actually watched a ton of older movies because I could go to the movie store and rent them. You know, I mean, that's great a great question because I had the same experience growing up. And also there were a lot more old movies just on a regular TV right. um, back when I was growing up in the 80s. I mean, one of the ways I got interested in these stars of the past was that we always had the TV guide at my house and I would there'd be a section in the TV guide of all the movies that were going to be on TV that right. week with little summaries. And I would just like read them and yes. kind of memorize them. I love the so, TV guide. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was so great. I don't know why. Like I I like poured over that every time every time it came to the house. Also, it was tiny, which was kind yeah. of a novelty. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to answer your question about where these movies are available, actually, a lot of stuff is on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of stuff is on DVD and you can buy it on Amazon. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, I would say that like very rarely there are movies that I need to watch for research that I can't find anywhere. Mm. But even the ones that are not commercially available. And I mean, I understand that this is not like entirely legal, but often they are available to watch on YouTube right. or on other websites. Right, right. So like if you're really dedicated to trying to watch something like you can usually find a way to do so. Yeah. What I was struck by listening to You Must Remember This is how messy 
Hollywood seemed. I mean, it was like affair after affair after suicide attempt after backstabbing after alcoholism. It was that sort of rife in the industry or was that um, just sort of what people were talking about at the time? But that wasn't really, you know, illustrative of what was actually happening. Do you know who Luella Parsons was? No. So she was one of the great gossip columnists of mm-hmm. the sort of mid-century Hollywood era. It's basically her and another female gossip columnist named Hedda Hopper. Mm-hmm. And they were two of the most powerful women in Hollywood um, because they they were the people who knew everything about all of the scandals and made deals with all of the studios and all of the like powerful performers about what they would reveal and what they wouldn't and how they would reveal things. Right. So Luella Parsons, like towards the end of her career, she gave this interview and she ha- said this thing that was basically like, all of this stuff happens in every town except mm-hmm. that you don't hear about it. Right. Um, and so I think that to some extent that's true. Um you know, maybe there's like a slightly higher percentage of affairs and divorces and drug use and things like that in Hollywood. But I don't think it's so much higher. Right. I think it's just that the industry um, really from the 1920s on has always had this sort of push and pull between like the products it makes and the way it promotes them mm-hmm. and using these ideas that it puts out there and then also it it tries to contain about its stars as personal lives mm-hmm. as a way to drum up interest in the products. Right, right. Because when I was listening to um, to many of your episodes, I kept thinking like, are other industries like this? Like, is this happening in the insurance industry? You know, it, right. just, it just seemed like a lot of drama. I mean, I'm sure that insurance executives... I mean, I don't want to specifically, you know, trash anybody that right. I don't know what's going on in their actual lives. But I'm sure in other industries, like there are a lot of these things happening, but just nobody cares. Right, right, right. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not reading the gossip pages to learn about, you know, what's happening in um, the construction business, you know. Right. Although, America. I mean, nowadays, like we do give this kind of treatment to people in politics, mm-hmm. um, to like, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, mm-hmm. Um People, there are people who are celebrities who have nothing to do with cinema. Right, right, totally. You know, one one series that uh, that you did more recently was called Dead Blondes, and you profiled women like Jane Mansfield and Jean Harlow and Marilyn Monroe. Um, and what I like about that series a lot is that you you unpack a lot of gender assumptions. You know that these that, that blonde women were pure, or they were icy, or they were bombshells. And um, and I wonder, you know, what what was the inspiration for um, digging into that? It kind of started as a joke um, mm-hmm. because I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for that upcoming season. And I did like a Twitter poll mm-hmm. where I asked um, – I basically was like, what do you want from the next season? Do you want, um, uh, you know, choice one, politics, choice two, sex, choice three, death? Mm-hmm. And death won. <laughs> and sex was pretty like close behind. <laughs> and so I just like, you know, was like, well, I guess I should just like, you know, do – a season about dead blondes. Mm-hmm. And then everybody I said that to sort of flippantly was like, yeah, you totally should. Right. Like, that would be great. Right. Um, and so it, it was kind of a way of being able to give, you know, in a tongue in cheek way, like give people like what they say they want, mm-hmm. while also like revealing that a lot of our assumptions and our stereotypes about these actresses are either false or kind of skewed. Um, and that there were many different types of blonde experience. Um 
And, you know, I mean, that's just generally like what the whole show is about is right. is just trying to reveal the fullness of it, of these people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, when are you going to do a Dead Redhead series? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but I, I have thought about doing a series about Lucille Ball. Yes, yes. I mean, there are a lot of famous uh, famous gingers, and uh, although yeah. although you wouldn't be able to tell if they were in black and white, because they might just look like, you know, yeah. light hair I did do an episode on Rita Hayworth. Right, right. The stunning red-headed dancer-slash-actress, best known today as the star of Gilda, whose pin-up photo played a key role in the Shawshank Redemption, was certainly love-struck and iconically quaffed, but the persona she projected of a self-confident sex goddess who could wrap the men of the world around her little finger effortlessly was a lie. Or maybe more accurately, it was an invention. Forced into show business by her sexually abusive father at age 12, manipulated into movie stardom by her pimp-like first husband, and imprisoned within that stardom by Columbia studio chief Harry Cohn, Rita Hayworth made it to her mid-20s, operating on the assumption that her true identity was a dirty secret that had to be protected at all costs. You know, one thing that I was, um, that is perhaps missing from your catalog of stories um, are, are stories about actors of color. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you have this amazing episode about Lena Horne um, and about Bruce Lee and his son Brandon, but um, but I feel like there's more to mine. Is that on your agenda for the future? Yeah, I mean, I would love to, to do more stories about people of color and, you know, the the issue is that there are honestly not that many stories to tell of people who are as um, continually famous as somebody mm-hmm. like Bruce Lee. Right. Um, and so it's just a question of like me figuring out the right way to structure a series. Right. Um, and on some level, like I'm I'm not sure that I just would want to do like like the Asian American experience or sure. the black experience. Like these things are a little too big. Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of me figuring out like a research angle that I'm excited about and that I think would work for me to tell these stories as a white woman. Karina Longworth, host of You Must Remember This. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Karina Longworth is the host of You Must Remember This from Panoply. To find out more about her show, hit up biglisten.org. Now, you remember our pal Eric Anderson from the top of the show. He's an Oscarologist or a person who makes awards predictions professionally, which he does on his website, awardswatch.com. Now, predicting the outcome of award shows like the Oscars is a bit of a crapshoot, but there is a skill to it. Predicting awards is somewhere in between uh, art and science, and it's really more gut and, and, and science. There we're kind of getting out of an era right now where precursors, which is, you know, everything that's come before it, like the Golden Globes or the Screen Actors Guild, you know, give you these these breadcrumbs that, that lead you to uh, what's going to win. And it used to be pretty easy, I think, in a sense, because uh, – they they often followed each other pretty consistently. But recently, Anderson's had to change up his approach to predicting the winners. Starting really last year and most definitely this year, thing, things are very different. And relying on your your gut and your instinct is going to pay off a whole lot more than relying on statistics and history. There are a couple of reasons for that. 
The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which doles out the Oscars, added more voting members and changed the balloting process. It's no longer just the movie with the most votes wins. Um, It's now a preferential ballot, so you have to rank all of your uh, uh, Best Picture nominees in order of what you like the most to the least. Anderson says the change also can be attributed in part to the issues raised by the Twitter hashtag OscarsSoWhite. In both 2015 and 2016, all 20 actors nominated in the lead and supporting acting categories were white. What it's really looking for is a consensus. Um, And that's one of the main reasons why Moonlight was able to upset last year over La La Land. We all remember that debacle last year, right? We lost, by the way, but, you know. I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. Oof, I remember that from last year. It was so bad and hard to watch. Let's hope it doesn't happen again this year, although it did make a pretty staid award show full of drama and intrigue, if only for a few minutes. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to chat with actor Paul Shear about films that never should have been made, possibly including Piranha 3D, a movie Shear starred in. There are things on the radio that back. Like, hey, everybody, if you are uh, missing a limb, an arm, or a leg, come on down this Saturday because we are shooting a really great scene in the Piranha movie. And they literally got amputees <laughs> down on the beach. Up. Yeah. But first, we're going to dig a little deeper into the topic of representation this movie season with film critic Aisha Harris. You had Jordan Peele, a black man, helming this movie about what it's like to be a black man in 2017, 2018. And then you have Patty Jenkins, who is helming this giant Marvel movie. And so seeing how it makes a difference when you have people telling their own stories was really, really exciting. That's coming up in a sec. Stay put. This is NPR. Hi, this is David from Germantown, Maryland. I listen to so many podcasts, but I have to recommend one specific podcaster, and that's Matt Baum. He hosts two podcasts. The first is The Sewers of Paris. Hello and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. We're on a podcast adventure to discover the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. Join us on tonight's episode when my guest Andrew says... An eagle swept down and stole the breakfast from the woman at the next table. The topic is James Bond and Fraggle Rock. The second podcast is Defining Marriage, where Matt and his credible partner James uh, talk about what's happening around the world with marriage equality. Um, but the reason I really love the show is because of the absolutely weird banter between Matt and James that always makes me laugh. This has changed, but uh, or maybe it hasn't. Maybe you haven't drawn a human face in a long time. Hey, what's but the last time you saw a human face? Your, I don't know. All right, thanks. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and thanks to David for calling up with not one but two recommendations this week. Well, if you have a podcast or two you just cannot keep to yourself, let us know about them. Call up the pod line at 202-885-POD1. We need some new stuff to listen to. If you follow the big annual movie awards, you'll notice a few things. There are not many movies about women or people of color that get nominated for the marquee prizes. 
And there's a real dearth of actors of color getting recognized for their work. And women hardly ever get nominated in categories that aren't gender specific. Aisha Harris has been trying to draw attention to those issues. She's the host of the show Represent, which looks at media made by historically marginalized groups. As a film critic, Harris is particularly attuned to who's in movies and what they're about. Here she is talking about the sleeper hit Lady Bird. The director, Greta Gerwig, is the only woman nominated in the Oscars Best Director category this year. It's, it's been very interesting to watch uh, this this narrative play out, especially at the Golden Globes after Natalie Portman made her what may or may not have been off the cuff statement about um, there being no ma- female directing uh, nominations at the Golden Globes. It's been interesting to me to watch this play out. And, and I hope I kind of hope it gets it sneaks its way into the best picture category. But I'm not sure. I, I still I'm worried well, she needn't be because Lady Bird is one of the nine Best Picture nominees this year. Aisha Harris, host of Represent, welcome to The Big Listen. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so you are both a culture writer at Slate and uh, host of this show that digs into movies and television. Did you always want to critique and write about um, the medium, or, or were you ever interested in making them and then just sort of transitioned into um, what you do now, cultural examination of all of these things? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had, I actually, so for undergrad, I went to school for, for theater, mm-hmm. and so I had dreams of being an actor, mm-hmm. uh, but then when I realized that like when I learned that it could actually be, I could write about movies for a living, that kind of led me to grad school where I, that was, that was all I did. A film studies program and all we did was, was watch movies and, and actually read a lot. There's a lot of reading. There's probably more reading than actually <laughs> watching movies. Really? But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, and a lot of really dense stuff. So much theory, yeah. Yeah, Eisenstein, it's just, uh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you have a sense of, on average, how many films you watch in a year? Well, I keep track of all the movies I watch for the first time every year. Okay. Um, I don't I don't include movies that I rewatch. Right. Um, but I think the most I've watched in one year uh, was probably, I'd have to go back and look, but it's probably around like 140. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I, I usually watch at minimum 100 in a oh year. Oh my new gosh. Movies. That's new movies. And then you're just watching, I'm assuming you just watch some for fun, like your favorite movies right. over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, oh, for man. sure. So, um so your show is called Represent and you're digging into TV and movies about people who tend to be underrepresented in mainstream media and I wonder um from your point of view how are we doing in terms of representation particularly in in um popular movies in 2018 or rather in the last Ooh. year I would say. <laughs> yeah, how are we doing? Um I'd say we've had a lot of uh, high highs and then some low lows and, and some in between. I think that it's gotten better in a, in a sense, um, you know, you can name check the sort of the big tent poles of last year mm-hmm. that really stuck a flag in like, this is this is good for representation, Wonder Woman and Get Out. The fact that they were 
successful. They were hounds by the people who they were supposed to be representing, if Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you had Jordan Peele, a black man, helming this movie about what it's like to be a black man in 2017, 2018. And then you have Patty Jenkins, who is helming this giant Marvel movie. And so seeing that and, and seeing how it makes a difference when you have people telling their own stories was really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. But then you also had at the same time, just a few weeks after Get Out came out, you had something like Ghost in the Shell. Scarlett Johansson was playing a character who was in the animated version, uh, originally conceived as a Asian character. Up now, MTV News critic Ingu Kang and Vulture's Alex Jung chat with me about the new film Ghost in the Shell and where it stands as a remake and within the larger discussion happening within Hollywood right now about the whitewashing and sidelining of Asian characters in Hollywood. I guess we should just start off by saying that Alex and I went to the screening of Ghost in the Shell last night and we had a very interesting uh, experience. Right Before the movie even started. Before the movie started. (laughs) (laughs) So... We were in this packed movie theater. There's a bunch of people. It's like a mixture of both critics and, you know, just people who get a sneak peek right. um, who aren't within necessarily within the film industry um, or the media industry. And, you know, the publicist, I think he's a publicist. He's a white dude. I don't know. He <laughs> he comes. He's he he tells everyone, hey, um, you know, we're make sure your cell phones are off the standard fare. And then at a perfect moment in between like him taking a breath someone uh on my left to the left of me in the theater yells whitewashing right (laughs) and all of a sudden the white dude stops and he's like who said that so yeah there there were some high highs were some low lows and and i think that you know there's there's progress being made slowly but surely mm-hmm. but it's 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 so systemic that it's not going to like one year alone is not going to solve the issue and in one director alone whether sure. it's Patty Jenkins or Jordan Peele or Greta Gerwig like they are not by themselves going to turn the tide it's going to take a lot of work sure sure yeah i feel like um obviously we can't talk about uh, award season this year without talking about Me Too and Time's Up and Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, all these folks who have been accused of um, sexual harassment, sexual assault in the industry. I wonder what you, um, you know, as a as a cultural critic, as a movie critic, are making of this particular moment in in our history. I think that, quite frankly, I, I continue to be surprised by how um, how this hasn't gone away mm-hmm. in, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's heartening that this, uh, ever since the accusations against Weinstein first dropped um, back in October, it's kind of you know there is there is a time where every day there is like a new person right. uh, <laughs> being accused of something terrible, sure. and. Um, I guess the, the the issue with that is that then it becomes sort of numbing in a way. And right. we, we're, we're focusing too much on the individual, um, the in- individuals who are accused of these things as opposed to um, the more systemic issues right. um, that are at the heart of this. And it's interesting as a critic, though, to to, you know, the, the, the question then begin becomes like, how do you assess yeah. um, the art? Yeah. And. 
I struggle with it. There are no easy answers. You know, I I read last week Roxane Gay wrote a piece about this um, for Marie Claire magazine, and and she wrote, uh, I no longer struggle with artistic legacies. It is not difficult to dismiss the work of predators and angry men because agonizing over a predator's legacy would mean there is some price I'm willing to let victims pay for the sake of good art, when the truth is no half hour of television is so excellent that anyone's suffering is recompense. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't fall quite into that camp uh, sure. along with Roxanne Gay, but I I do think that, you know, I take it on like a case by case basis. I, I also don't feel comfortable completely dismissing um, or pretending that a work doesn't exist. Right. Um, and and yeah, it, it's it's a it's a tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely think that when it comes to honoring these people, I think we need to take a step back and maybe reconsider those types of things. Right. Right. Do you think that, um, you know, the with um, the Me Too movement and its subsequent comeuppance that there will be some, you know, knock on effect in in Hollywood? I hope so. I mean, I will say that there have been plenty of people even before Me Too who have been working behind the scenes actively. Again, there's like a whole hierarchy of who chooses what and who chooses what gets made um, that I think that until we have more people in those positions at a higher level who um, are more open, more receptive, and frankly are women and or people of color, Mm -hmm. um, until that happens, it's, you know, because it's, it's, it's art, quote unquote, it's so easy for for people making that art to hide behind like creative license. Yeah, and yeah. I, I I think that has to change. Mm-hmm. So, will you make a prediction for best picture? Ooh, um, or, or one that you would like to win? Okay. Well, I think Get Out should win hands okay. down. Um, I don't think it's going to win. Everyone's saying The Shape of Water right now, and I think mm-hmm. that seems like it, it'll probably win. Um, just because it, it takes on, I think, lots of the issues that we're, we're dealing with right mm-hmm. now. It, it, I, like, I feel like it's the definition of the intersectionality that oh, so many mm-hmm. of us want. From, you know, the, it has to deal with otherness of women, of people of color, of uh, there's a, a gay character in it. And so I think the fact that it, it mixes all those things up, plus it's like, pleasant it's uh it's beautifully made it's gorgeous it's got a little bit of a fantastical streak to it it's mm-hmm. like not quite as biting i think in its um in its um in its politics as something like get out or three billboards are, mm-hmm. are. um i think that in a way, i don't want to say it's a safe choice but i feel like it's like a crowd pleasing choice right. that It'll, it'll, it'll lean that way. So right. I'm going to go with The Shape of Water. All right. Well, we will see if um, if your prediction uh, slash hope comes to pass. Uh, Aisha Harris, host of Represent, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing all your thoughts on uh, this year's Oscars with us. Thank you. Aisha Harris is the host of Represent from Slate. To find out more about her show, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk to actor Paul Shear about why there are so many horrendous movies out there. 
I've been in things, I've written things, I've had to deal with network notes, I've had to deal with studio notes, and you realize, oh, it's so hard to get something good from the starting point all the way to the finish line. That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hey, pals. Thanks for listening to The Big Listen. Do us a favor and help us out by telling us what you like and how we can improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. It just takes a few minutes of your time and you'll do us all at The Big Listen a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks. Hi, Lauren. It's Robin in Santa Rosa. This is a new podcast I'm really excited about. It's called Tweet of the Week, and it's out of uh, the BBC, and it has nothing to do with Twitter. It's about birds. After coming back from a two-and-a-half-year trip to South America, I was really excited when I was driving into Harrogate in Yorkshire, and I looked up, and there was a red kite circling around. Now, previously I'd lived in Oxford for 12 years and I'd uh, really enjoyed watching the slow expansion of these red kites in the area because they'd been reintroduced um, to a secret site on the Ridgeway. It's beautifully produced with the song of the bird. Uh, Some of the stories are very moving. Some of them are funny. It's just a lovely little podcast and I highly recommend it. Tweet of the week. Thank you. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and thanks to our most loyal listener, Robin, for calling in with yet another recommendation. Well, if you want to take a page from Robin's book, give us a jingle on the pod line. The number is 202-885-POD1. Actor and comedian Paul Scheer might not be a household name, but you've probably seen his work. He's been in The Disaster Artist, Veep, and Fresh Off the Boat, among many other movies and TV shows. And over the years, he's come to appreciate the absurdity of the industry, so much so that he has a podcast about it. Sheer is the host of How Did This Get Made, a podcast featuring his wife, actress June Diane Raphael, and their pal and fellow actor Jason Mansukas. On the show, they dig into some of the worst movies ever made, like The Garbage Pail Kids movie, My Stepmother is an Alien, and Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. Yeah, go ahead. The year is 1986. It is, right now? Right now. Were you at the theater to see The Howling 2? I did not. I've never seen this movie. And, and, And spoiler alert, I have never seen Howling 1 that I am assuming is just called The Howling. Howling 1. Can you imagine the brazenness of naming something something one? <laughs> Paul Shear, one of the hosts of How Did This Get Made. Welcome to The Big Listen. I am so excited to be here. This is going to be great. I am excited that you are here to talk about all kinds of trash movies. But first I want to um, ask, I'm guessing you were maybe a movie nerd when you were a kid. Is that correct, maybe? Yeah, you know, I think this term nerd is thrown around a lot, and I feel like I just like movies. Okay. And I, like, and I didn't even understand that there were bad movies. Like, yeah. when you're a kid, every movie is great. 
I'm a nerd in general. I just watched a ton of movies. I right. had them on VHS tapes on a shelf labeled very nicely. When I worked for Blockbuster, I stole VHS boxes from the back room so my VHS collection could look as nice as theirs. <laughs> Wait, you worked at Blockbuster? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I worked oh. at Blockbuster. Our <laughs> store sold the most Aladdin uh, VHS copies of all of Long oh, Island. Not a big deal. I don't want to yeah, <laughs> brag about anything. I, I remember being so upset. I was... Um, in NYU, and I applied to be work at a movie theater, and I got uh-huh. rejected from working at like the Lowe's Seventy Fourth right. Street movie theater. And I was like, "Why? <laughs> what? What didn't I do here? Exactly. Like, why couldn't I get in?" Right. And, and I actually went to a premiere of a movie that I was in there, and still feel like a little angry, like. <laughs> Bastards wouldn't, that wouldn't hire me. Amazing! Like you're still harboring bad feelings when you go and get popcorn at that theater. Oh, yeah. and you're like, oh, this could have been me. I could have swept up that that, that nacho <laughs> cheese from the floor. <laughs> what um, what was the motivation for the show? Uh, a show that tries to make sense of movies that that don't make any sense. Well, you know, it came up really organically. I mean, we started this back in 2010, and there wasn't many podcasts. Around It was mm-hmm. just sort of like they were starting, friends had them, but they were mainly interview podcasts. And yeah. one night, uh, June and I had seen Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, which was a, a fantastic sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and um, we were telling Jason about it. And in the middle of the conversation, Jason's like, this is a podcast. It's a tale as old as time. A vampire loves a girl who wants to be a vampire, but that vampire doesn't want to turn the girl because that werewolf who loves her will kill her to protect his tribe. Plus... A baby-eating C-section. We imprinted with Twilight Breaking Dawn, part one. So you know what that means. Because I think the most interesting thing about movies is that conversation that you have. And I always say, like, at the diner, after you've seen a film. It's like that... And and you can do it for good movies. Like We could have the same conversation about the Phantom Thread. Mm -hmm. It it won't be... It would probably be a lot more complimentary... um, but it's it's still like well, what what was that? Did you notice that right. thing? Oh, that was weird. Oh, I like that. That was you know. So we're just kind of stocking, you know, we're stocking the pond, if you will, by kind of putting these movies up that are bizarre, and right. it gives us a lot to talk about. But I've been on the other side of that too. I've been in things. I've written things. I've had to deal with network notes. I've had to deal with studio notes. And you realize, oh, it's so hard to get something good from the starting point all the way to the finish line. Right. So we are we are. In support, we love these movies, but we have questions. Sure, sure. I am constantly perplexed as to how these movies get greenlit or paid oh for. Um, well, have you ever heard about that company that makes the movies that are just slightly off? So it's like Transmorphers. No, um, they um, make like <laughs> like there, there was like The Hobbit, and they made one called you know. So that came out. That's a, a regular right, movie, right. and they have this one called like. The elves. Like it, it's just, it just, it feels right. So when you're scrolling on like VOD, you go, oh, right, Transmorphers. Everyone's talking about Transmorphers. And then, oh, I meant Transformers, but it's too late. You already spent the two ninety nine. And those movies, I have no idea how they get made. I don't have any idea why people want them. And, and for us, we try not to torture our audience. We're like, right. you're going to watch this with us. We don't want to make it painful for you. Right. Have you been in any movies that you would say would be worthy of uh, how of did treatment? this get made treatment? Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I would. I mean, look, you know, the tricky thing is and the reason why we oftentimes don't have people on to talk about their own movies is because there's a certain level of respect that you have as a performer. You're like, you know what? 
we had a good time there. Like you know, it's like you sure. don't want to like you know. But um, I will say that there was one movie. Piranha 3D was the first movie I was in. <laughs> and then it was so successful that they decided to follow it up with Piranha 3 Double D. It's double the action. Something's wrong with me. What did you do with Double the terror. And double the fun. And uh, that one I would put on the on the docket. Uh, it's an insane movie. Um, my <laughs> I, character died. I thought you were joking. I thought you were oh. fooling with me. I just had to Google your, your IMDb yes. account. It's true. Yes. Andrew, true. you played Andrew. I played Andrew the cameraman. I will tell you that Piranha 3D was actually a well executed movie for what it is. But then Piranha 3 Double D. So they brought me and Ving Rames back. We're the only two people that they brought back. Oh, and Christopher Lloyd, because Christopher Lloyd. Oh, and Richard Dreyfus was in the first one too, by the way. Yeah, reprising his role from Jaws. From Jaws to Piranha 3D. All right, so the first movie is like Spring Break, Havasu, these Piranha Get Out. This one was Piranha Get Loose in a, wait for it, water park. (laughs) A water park. And these piranhas like somehow seep into the system and start killing everyone. Now, I somehow, my character from the first movie, I was like a Girls Gone Wild cameraman that now is best friends with Ving Rhames, who is the local sheriff. We never talked in the first movie, but now we're best friends. And I'm trying to get him over his fear of the water again. And, of course, I bring him on the day that the piranha attacked the water park. But no big deal because Ving Rhames has turned his two legs which are eaten off they're prosthetics he right. turned them into shotguns so he has two Ooh. shotgun legs and uh me and ving wow. fight off i mean this movie is bananas <laughs> i remember when i was shooting piranha the first one we were in uh, arizona and there were things on the radio they're back like, hey everybody if you are uh, missing a limb an arm or a leg come on down this saturday because we are shooting <laughs> a really great scene in the piranha movie and they literally got amputees <laughs> down on the beach up. yeah that it was is, insane. It it it's so crazy. I can't yeah. even believe that. Yeah, that was a, that was a nuts one. <laughs> Why do you think we love to hate bad movies or the appeal of? I mean, I guess what you guys aren't you, you guys are not hate watching. You are appreciating the sort of yes. ridiculousness. Well, I think there's a like there's a little bit, and I think maybe from Jason and June and myself, our standpoint is like. We're in this world. We've been in these situations. We know that it's not rotten to the core. People are trying. I think that's a really sweet way of of looking at anything that, like, I'm impressed that anybody can make anything, frankly. Um, 100%. Because it's hard. To actually take it from idea to actually execution it it's a i think it's a, it's always a triumphant tale yeah. and and you know what and, and you're going to fail as much as you're going to succeed to a certain degree i mean for every et there's a 1941 <laughs> you know it's it's the same people involved it's the same ideas but it's like yeah just not going it's not going the right way Paul Shear is one of the hosts of Earwolf's How Did This Get Made, along with June Diane Raphael and Jason Mansukas. To find out more about the show, go to biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode, but before we dip out, it's time for our occasional segment called Wait, What? Have you ever happened upon a podcast and thought to yourself, Wait, what? This is a podcast? How simultaneously random and delightful. Well, you are not alone, my friend. 
We have two. So we wanted to showcase some of the more offbeat shows in the podcast universe. And our guide today for Wait What will be our intern, Camila Salazar. Hi, Camila. Hello, Lauren. What do you got for us today? Let's talk about fandom. <laughs> like, <laughs> like people who are mega fans about things? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So what's a fandom with a huge following that maybe has one too many podcasts attributed to it? Game of Thrones. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good guess, though. Okay. It's wait, wait, wait. Okay. Harry Potter. Yes. Oh! <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So the Sorting Hat, let's, we'll let him explain to you what he is. Okay. Oh, you may not think I'm pretty, but don't judge on what you see. I'll eat myself if you can find a smarter hat than me. You can keep your bowlers black, your top hats sleek and tall, for I'm the Hogwarts sorting hat, and I can cap them all. There's nothing hidden in your head the sorting hat can't see, so try me on and I will tell you where you ought to be. Wait, does the sorting hat tell you what house you need to be in? Exactly. It's a singing hat that reads minds and sorts new students into the Hogwarts houses that they belong to. Naturally. Naturally. So here's a little cheat sheet for you. Gryffindors are known for being bold and brave. Ravenclaws are known for being smart and scholarly. Hufflepuffs are known for being loyal and friendly. And Slytherins are known for being ambitious and cunning. So this podcast is essentially a guy sorting characters from other stories and universes and fandoms <laughs> into the Hogwarts houses. Hello and welcome to The Sorting Podcast. My name is Xander Genre and I'll be your host. Today we're sorting Sailor Moon. She is the one. <laughs> Sailor Moon. I don't even know what that is. Labyrinth. Okay, I do know Labyrinth. Right, because David Bowie's in that. Game of Thrones. Obviously, I know Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Parks and Recreation. Oh my God, I can't, I can't imagine the amount of thought that went into something like that. That like you have to think about all the characters and all these other things and then divide them in by what virtues you think they have. <laughs> yeah, but I think the draw for this podcast is like identity and where do I belong in the world and what's my purpose and who am I? I think that we've always seen people interested in personality quizzes, whether it's through printed magazines or through like a BuzzFeed quiz, like which house are you oh, yeah. type what, of thing. What uh, destination wedding are you? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I'm a sucker for it. I'll do the stupid thing and I'll share my results too. be like, oh, I'm Waikiki. <laughs> it's kind of comforting to see yourself explained to you almost. If they see themselves as uh, like relatable to a fictional character or they see themselves as I'm a traditional Hufflepuff. Let's see who else is in my house. You know, there's something there that draws them. So if like I was in the same house as Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. Like that would be exciting. That would be really cool. Yeah. And so before Xander and I finished our conversation, we we sorted some of the most popular podcasts. <laughs> Welcome to Night Vale. Slytherin. Reply all. Ravenclaw. The Ted Radio Hour. Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you couldn't guess that voice we did at the end was the sorting hat. We were mimicking oh, the sorting okay, hat. So okay, thank you for remi- like that. Okay, thank you. I'm yeah. glad that those were not mm-hmm. your real voices. Yes, of course. <laughs> and then 
obviously we had to sort the big listen. Oh, gosh. My instinct for the big listen is to stick it into Hufflepuff. <laughs> And it's because it's like a, a non-biased approach to like everybody's welcome and you're reaching out and you're being everybody's friend. And uh, I think those are very admirable Hufflepuff traits. We also agreed that we would be Hufflepuff because we are just trying to be yeah. friends with everyone. Just we love all podcasts. Absolutely. So, yeah. okay, so we agree. The big listen. Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What? Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will grace your feed every week automatically, and you don't even have to lift a finger. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. I hear Twitter is where all the cool kids go. If you want to drop us a love note, you can also email us at biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, Camila Salazar, and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was wondering how this got made. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore. It is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Eric Anderson, host of the Awards Watch podcast and a bona fide Oscarologist. Anderson has been obsessed with award shows since he was a young kid. For him, they're about more than the wins and losses. They're about what those results mean. Like when Moonlight won Best Picture in 2017. I started thinking of myself when I was a little kid and, you know, in a tiny town and being super, super gay and watching the Oscars. And I thought of some kid that is watching this and has this validation that the show sort of gives. And I just, oh my God, I think about it now and I I just want to like start bawling because it has real impact and it can really be life-changing. But then Anderson also loves the Oscars for the reason most of us love the Oscars. I want the drama. Yeah, I want the drama too. (laughs) Anderson's predicting that Get Out wins the Best Picture Award this year. And if it does, there will certainly be some drama, but hopefully the good kind. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening. This is NPR.